Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Mashup, where we discuss insane sports matchups that would only happen in our wildest dreams. We each select one of the very best sports teams in history and match them against each other to see who would come out on top. From the pros to the underclassmen, football, basketball, and everything in between, with a totally even playing field before us and our imaginations to help us guide our respective claims, who do you think would be the ultimate champion? Came up with his 2,000th hit this year and his 1,000th RBI, both against Washington's Joe Coleman. Left center dropping in. One run is in. Robinson scoring. In the second goes Brooks Robinson, and the Orioles lead two to nothing. The series comes down to one more out. The pinch hitter is Pat Corrales, and poetic justice directs this routine grounder to the right man. Sweet bird of ecstasy. The year-long run for redemption is over. The Orioles, in the role of beaten favorites, come roaring back. And Brooks Robinson, held the one hit in the World Series of 1969, hits the jackpot in seven. Bottom of the 12th inning. One out. One-one tie. Charlie Kerfeld and Gary Carter dueling here. Up the middle, base hit. Backman turns third. Hatcher's throw, no play. Easy for Backman. Carter wins it with his second hit of the series, and the Mets win the ball game in 12, two to one. I'd almost bet the house that he's going to punt. Oh, yeah. Swinging and a ground ball into center field. In comes Knight. It is eight to five Mets, and Joe, you just lost your house. Johnson, I tell you, is living a charmed life. He's the only guy in the ballpark that thought he should hit, and it paid off for him. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Mashup. My name is Jay, your host, and as always, sitting across from me, I have Cam. How you doing today, Cam? I'm doing good, Jay. Good to talk to you, man. Uh, we were excited earlier. Jay sent me a text talking about uh, the NFL season schedules come out, so that means that NFL season tickets are out, which means that me and Jay are buying our tickets for the Colts and Raiders game coming up this season. Um, but we're talking about baseball, so I'm even more jazzed about that. But I'm doing good, man. Like, the weather's finally starting to turn. I'm excited. How are you, Jay? Oh, I'm the same. The weather's turning. It's a beautiful day outside, and I am just salivating for the moment that that schedule is released. Tomorrow morning, when those tickets become available, I will be I will be keeping an eye out to see when we can uh, make our trip down to Indy for the NFL season, you know, whether it's September or December. I think uh, I think that'll be a good time. We'll have to do a special episode, I think. Maybe that'll be the time we do our all-time great Raiders team versus our all-time great Indianapolis Colts team. Yeah, hey, it makes sense to me, dude. Um, so yeah, man, that should be a lot of fun. Obviously, got my boys, I got my Raiders. I might have Derek Carr in my ultimate uh, my ultimate team. I don't know yet. Depends on how he does this year, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It'll depend on what part of the season it takes place. <laughs> but uh, but you're right. We are talking baseball today. We are returning to Major League Baseball. We are talking the 1970 Baltimore Orioles and the 1986 New York Mets. And for today's episode, I am bringing in the Orioles. Cam is going to be bringing in 
the Mets. We're going to be chatting about what, you know, the rosters, the coaches, everything, you know, what was the story of the team. Then the back half of the episode is going to be us making our claims to fame, making our arguments as to why our teams would come out on top in a seven-game series. And then last but not least, we're going to throw these two teams into our What If Sports Simulator and find out who will walk away as the ultimate champion of today's episode. This is going to be a good one. You know, it's when we look for teams to use, sometimes we're looking at it's as simple as a Google search, right? The the top 50 MLB teams of all time. And that's where these two teams, that's where we found them, right? So we really wanted to dive into two really, really great teams um, that were pretty even. And once we get into the numbers, you guys will see just how even they really are. Um, so it makes it that much more interesting, that much more interesting. And, you know, unlike some of our other episodes, these two teams have played each other quite a bit. Um, 41 times, in fact, the Mets are up 26 to 15. So that's a little edge for me there. Um, and they actually did play each other in the 1969 World Series. And the Mets won that series four to one. Um, but also World Series titles, the Mets have two. So that 1969 uh, year I was talking about and then 1986, which is what I'll be talking about today. And then the Orioles actually have them in this category. They've got three World Series titles, one in 66, one in 70, and one in 1983. So again, still very even going right up into our, our matchup here. Yeah, both of these teams, they have a decent history with each other, which is, again, surprising for an AL and NL team, but they had a couple decades. I think it was the the uh, the 80s and the 90s where they didn't play each other at all, but more in the last two decades, they have had games against each other. In fact, the day that we are recording this, these two teams went up against each other, and so when I, when I saw that, I had to double check to make sure my facts were right, but indeed, you know, we had one of those AL NL crossovers today so thought that was cool and you're right these two teams were just the the best teams of their year I like this matchup a couple of teams you know that neither modern nor ancient but you know right in that sweet spot so I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how today's episode turns out yeah I, I noticed that too it seems like for for whatever reason um maybe now there are just more players to to pick from there are more uh, players in the league maybe that makes sense but um, like these older teams you don't get that two three four guys on a team that are all all-stars and hall of famers right like you were just saying you get like one or two sprinkled in there and then a, a very large handful of just average players that were on the right team in the right year and maybe had a really good season in that one year um, and and you'll notice that with both our teams like Jay said a couple hall of famers of course a couple guys who, um, you know, maybe should have been Hall of Famers, but then the vast majority of them are just above average players, average players that were in the right team at the right time in the right season. And uh, what do you say we get right into it, Jay? I'll start it off with my uh, 86 Mets. Please do. Okay. So we are going to start with the 1986 New York Mets. They had a record of 108 wins and 54 losses. Extremely great finish. Uh, they finished first in the National League East. And uh, just a little preseason story there. Um, just before this season started, general manager Frank Cashin uh, brought in a well-known guy, Tim Tufel, a right-handed hitting infielder from the Twins. Bob Ojeda, who I'll get into a lot later, a great left-handed pitcher. Um, Mets got him from the Boston Red Sox. 
and they actually would go on to play the Red Sox in the World Series, so I'm sure that would hurt, but uh, the Mets added those guys to an existing veteran core along with former MVPs George Foster and Keith Hernandez, and the team was coming off of two great seasons uh, back-to-back, so the season before this in 85 and two seasons ago in 84. So the organization, players, all the fans could really sense things moving in the right direction. Um, There was a feeling that they would dominate their, their division, that they would win their division based on the two previous years and those additions that I mentioned. Um, But no one quite predicted this kind of dominance, except for the skipper, Davey Johnson. This guy, which I'll get into, him and the players were just about as confident as you can get. Uh, During spring training, Davey Johnson said to his guys, you know, we're not only going to win, but we're going to dominate. And that means that we need to win the division by at least double digits. They did it. They finished 21 and a half games in front of the Phillies. 21 and a half games separated them from the second place team man really liking uh really liking the sound of that davy johnson guy sounds like uh he's a really good manager and maybe a really good player at some point in his life you know i think you're <laughs> i think you're absolutely right and we're gonna get into that uh funny story you know all the research jay and i did and neither of us realized that my head coach was actually one of jay's star players uh back in the day <laughs> when he played so we got a pretty good chuckle out of that um, but yeah, on to the postseason here, and we've gone into this before, but up until 1994, there were only four teams in the playoffs, so there were no wild card games, uh, nothing like that. So in the NLCS, they won versus the NL East champs, the Houston Astros. They beat them four games to two, and this was an exciting series to watch. I, I watched all six games of this one because, well, I'll tell you why, because the players in each team were so great. So Houston had... NL Cy Young winner Mike Scott, who is also the NLCS MVP, even though they lost. So just goes to show you how good he really was. Future Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan, future Hall of Famer Tom Seaver, and the 1986 Silver Slugger Glenn Davis. So the Houston Astros had a squad. Games 5 and 6 went into extra innings. One was 12 innings, one was 16 innings. So that was a great series there. Like I said, um, you know, my boys, the Mets, took that one 4-2. to two. And then on to the World Series. Beat the Red Sox four games to three. And again, the Red Sox had a stacked squad. Future Hall of Famer Wade Boggs and Jim Rice. And then eight-time Gold Glove winner Dwight Evans. And then, oh yeah, not to mention one of the best pitchers of all time, Roger Clemens, who was a young Roger Clemens, just completely dominated the league that year. Um, But the Red Sox won the first two games. Mets came back, tied the series two to two. And then game six, if you don't know, is known as the Bill Buckner game. So the Mets were down five to three in the 10th inning. They fought back and tied at five to five. And that's when chaos ensued. You know, Bill Buckner had its seemingly easy ground ball uh, down the first baseline. He was a first baseman. It went right underneath his glove. Just nothing else you could say about it. I mean, it went right in between his glove down the first baseline. Game winning run scored with two outs. Um, so that was pretty crazy. And then they end up winning game seven, eight to five. Um, Ray Knight would get the World Series MVP, three hits, including a home run. And, um, you know, just kind of a funny thing that happened too during the game. Uh, it was game six. Yeah, game six. And in the first inning, some crazy Mets fan came in from the outfield, 
like flying in on a parachute and landed like right in front of the second baseman and damn near gave him a heart attack and no one tackled him nothing happened they just calmly like escorted him out of there he's screaming let's go Mets like (laughs) it was hilarious man yeah at the World Series I'm a fan I'm cheering for my team and all of a sudden some guy (laughs) <laughs> starts coming down on a parachute that's wild just crazy man that the 80s were a crazy time and and for my x factor i'll get into just how crazy this mets team was but now we're going into manager davy johnson so i already told you before he started his career in the mlb as a player for guess who right another just total coincidence he started for the baltimore orioles in 1965 and would play with them until 1972. You know, Jay's going to get into it a little bit, so I won't give you too many stats on him, but he was an all-star, three-time all-star, two-time World Series champion as a player, so he won in 66 and 70, and uh, he last played with the Chicago Cubs in 78, so Davey, so far, you know, you're okay in my book. You ended with the Cubs. I love to see that, Um, and then, um, you know, he'd go on to want more in the MLB, so he became a manager. And this season here, 1986, was his third MLB season as a manager. He started with the Mets in 84. So like I said, they had two good finishes the years before. Uh, second, plate, second place finish behind the Cardinals by three games in 85. And then a second place finish in 84, um, you know, with 90 wins in that season. So like I said, a very much up and coming team. Davey Johnson was actually the first NL manager to secure 90 wins in each of his first five seasons. So it wasn't a fluke. He did it the two seasons before winning the, the World Series. And then two seasons after, um, you know, when the manager kind of dumped the whole team. So, um, you know, this guy's got skills, man. He's a very easygoing guy. You can tell that in his interviews and how he interacts with players during the game. Some people probably don't didn't like that. I understand Uh, basically he was just like listen if my guys win games I don't care how they act on the field or off the field I know what my players have I know what I'm asking them to do and if they do it why would I bitch at them so like totally totally laissez-faire kind of guy and and maybe that's what they needed maybe that's why they were so successful but yeah so Davey was a one-time World Series champ as a coach in 86 and then uh, just going along into the future here a little bit he won coach of the year in 97 and 2012, he went into the Hall of Fame as a player for the Orioles and as a head coach for the Mets. So, I mean, I would let that be, you know, my last stat. Boom. I know my head coach is better. I win. You, your, your Orioles team sucks, Jay. But unfortunately, that's just not how it goes, right? But uh, yeah, we'll go into the roster now here. I like making my roster on my list here in terms of or in order of their hitting lineup. That's just the way my mind works. Um, you know, that's my baseball mind there. So leadoff batter for the New York Mets center fielder, Lenny Dykstra. Lenny batted left and he threw left. This was his second season in the MLB at only 22 years old. Very young kid uh, in a young team that you'll notice. He had a 295 batting average, an 822 on base plus slugging and 31 stolen bases, which led the team. And then we've got batting number two, second baseman Wally Backman. He batted through righty. This was his seventh MLB season, 26 years old, uh, led the team with a 320 batting average, and he accumulated 124 hits. So uh, that's definitely what you want out of your number two guy. High average, putting the ball in play for your three, four hitters. 
Number three, I would say the catalyst for this lineup here. Your number three hitter, first baseman, Keith Hernandez. He was an all-star um, and a gold glover. He batted through left-handed. This was his 13th MLB season, so he was one of the veterans, one of the very few veterans of the group, 32 years old. He led the team in games played, at bats, runs, hits, doubles, walks, and on-base percentage. So like I said, he was the catalyst. Um, we'll continue here with my catcher. Gary Carter, uh, another all-star, and actually a silver slugger. The dude hit the ball uh, around the field every game. Uh, he was a righty, batting through right-handed. This was his 13th MLB season, 32 years old. Uh, he scored 81 runs, hit 24 homers, which was second on the team, and then he led the team with 105 RBI. And here's probably my favorite player on this roster. He just was a quick guy, great outfielder, a great teammate. Uh, right fielder, all-star, Daryl Strawberry. He was another lefty batting through left-handed. This was his fourth MLB season, so 24 years old. Again, you know, this is a young squad. Um, he led the team with 27 home runs and an 865 OPS. Uh, and then he had 93 RBIs, which was good for second on the team, and 28 stolen bases, second as well. We'll move on to left fielder Mookie Wilson. This guy batted switch, and then uh, he threw right-handed. This was his seventh MLB season, uh, 30 years old for him, 289 batting average, 28 stolen bases. So you're you're getting the idea here that my outfield definitely is they're a speedy bunch. You got 28 stolen bases for each of them there, um, and then you have the center fielder with 31. So all of them almost 30 stolen bases. You love to see that. And then we're going on to third baseman Ray Knight. Uh, this was his 11th MLB season, 33 years old, almost a 300 batting average. He was at 298, uh, and then he racked up 145 hits. Ray Knight, definitely a solid guy. I'll get into it a little bit later. He was slumping going into the playoffs a little bit and even in the uh, NLCS, but came through in the World Series, ended up getting the uh, the MVP for his team, and, and you could just tell how excited he was and and happy he was to get out of that slump. And then you've got uh, shortstop Rafael Santana batting through right-handed. Fourth MLB season, 28 years old. He played in he played in a lot of games, 139 games, um, which was a lot for him, especially because he was not a great hitter. I didn't even put his hitting stats up there because I didn't want Jay to make fun of me and my shortstop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just put in his fielding percentage instead, which was a 973. The guy was a stud and, you know, if if you're the rest of your team is hitting the shit out of the ball, you can afford to have one guy who really just kind of sits back and play defense, and that's how Rafael was. And then I've got four pitchers here, four of my five starters that I'll talk about real quick. Starting pitcher and all-star Dwight Gooden, he was a right-hander. Third MLB season, this was his second straight all-star selection, and he started in 33 games. Anytime you can start over 25 games is good. You're healthy. Um, you know, you're making every fifth, every fourth start. That's great. With a 2.84 ERA, definitely a hard thrower, hard throwing right-hander, and that's the opposite here of my next starting pitcher, Ron Darling, another right-hander. Fourth MLB season, he was an all-star the year before in 85. Um, he started in one more game than Gooden, so he started in 34 games and had just a little bit better of an ERA at 2.81. So those guys were your your one-two punch right there for sure. But Darling, kind of a, a different, you know, a lot of off-speed stuff, softer fastball. So 
definitely different than Gooden. And then you've got our number three guy, Bob Ojeda. He was a lefty. This was his seventh MLB season, started in 30 games. He led the team in ERA with a 2.57. Not sure how he didn't get an all-star nod. Uh, It doesn't make sense to me, especially considering the next pitcher, Sid Fernandez, another lefty who was our fourth pitcher in the rotation. He was an all-star. This was his fourth MLB season. He was an all-star in 86 and 87, um, but his ERA was at 3.52. You got four out of the five pitchers there um, that you can count on day in and day out, and and that's exactly what the Mets did, man. Yeah, that Mets team, I mean, you're, you're looking at this team, you got one, two, three, four, five all-stars I'm looking at right here. So, you know, I mean, all, all around, you know, it was definitely tough to find weaknesses in this team, you know, so I, I definitely gained a lot of respect for this team, you know, as as a whole, as a unit. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how many compare and contrast these two teams, you know, because I think there's a lot statistically that's similar between these teams, but almost they're almost polar opposites personality wise, it seemed like. Yeah. And you were talking about the confidence and stuff like that for your Orioles team. And that part of it is very similar, but still how the players went about their confidence, how the players acted totally different between our two teams so uh yeah get into your squad there yeah the uh, 1970 orioles had the same exact record a 108 wins for them they finished first in the al east during this year the preseason story for this team basically is that the previous year they had been expected to win it all. They went up against the Mets in 1969 and lost the series 4-1 to despite being favored. Uh, they had previously won the World Series in 1966, which was the first ever for the Orioles, you know, so it was a historic win for the franchise and, you know, greater things were continued to be expected. Uh, and so in 1970, they are, you know, were determined you know the the team mostly stayed intact you know it was almost entirely the same team you know there weren't a lot of big trades there weren't a lot of big moves that were made between that 69 and 70 season to put them over the edge but losing that series losing the big game is almost just as important to your experience as it is winning that game you know obviously you know you're you you would prefer to be the Super Bowl champions you prefer to you know win the NBA finals but having that loss under your belt I think adds an extra edge and that was definitely something that the Orioles were bringing in 1970 but to talk about those 70 playoffs they won the ALCS three to zero against the Minnesota Twins Twins were kind of the the clear-cut number two team out of the AL because it was the only team the Orioles had had a losing record against during the regular season. So going into the series, you know, the questions were like, oh, you know, they're going up against their kryptonite. You know, are they really going to be able to pull this out? Well, I mean, they went in, they handled business three to nothing. It, it wasn't really much of a thing. And then moving out of the World Series, they went up against the Cincinnati Reds, where they beat them 4-1. to one. Now, this Cincinnati Reds team, this was Pete Rose, Lee May, and the big red machine. This was absolutely one of the dynasties at the time. When they went into the series, they were not favored to win, but yet they were able to turn it around, win 4-1, to one, and, you know... 
despite you know everything that came out afterwards about Pete Rose that was all as a manager so this was still Pete Rose not betting against his own team so he can't use that against me but um you know the uh the the World Series was was well fought but it was they went up 3-0 then they lost one and then they came they came right back and won that last game nine to three. You know, it was really, it was just a domination. You know, they, they knew they were going to win that series. You know, a lot of teams, you know, think they know they're going to win a game or win a series, but this team definitely had something about them that was different. So, you know, that, that world series win was definitely very impressive against a very good team that would later go on to appear in the World Series three more times in 72, 75, and 76, where they would win the latter two. So you knew this is a truly great team that they beat. To talk a little bit about our manager, we're talking about Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver from St. Louis. His father was but a simple dry cleaner, but yet he managed to play a few years in the minor leagues. But in regards to his hitting ability, Jim Palmer, one of the starting pitchers I'm going to talk about in just a second, said the only thing that his manager knew about a curveball was that he couldn't hit one. Not <laughs> nearly the same. Welcome to the club, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Not the same impressive playing career that your manager had, but yet still one of the greats. However, because his managing career would land him in the Hall of Fame. He spent his entire career with the Orioles. He was hired as the first base coach before replacing the manager at the time, Hank Bauer, in 1968. In his 17-year career, he brought the team to the World Series four times and only ever had a losing record once. That came in his final year in 1986. He was well known for his philosophy of pitching defense and three run homers that that was it that's all you needed to win baseball games I guess he was against the use of quote-unquote small ball tactics like stealing bases or the sacrifice bunt you know weren't really in his repertoire you know he wanted to win and he wanted to win big and the other thing that he was known for and I thought this was interesting is he was known for his intense animosity his intense hatred for umpires he was ejected from games somewhere between 90 to 100 times during the course of his career with various umpires oh my being, god <laughs> with various umpires being taken off of all oriole games due to the rivalries that he would stir up you know there were several quotes i found of him accusing umpires of being against the integrity of the game he was that determined against them. So he he was not he was not shy about making his opinions known. That's a kind of head coach you want though. I mean one that definitely helps your team get ready for games, and one that's going to stand up for the players and of course the integrity of the game. I think it almost w was a way for the team, you know, for the rest of the guys, you know, that they didn't have to be rowdy, you know, that they didn't have to get too worked up over anything because they knew their manager was going to go out and possibly actually physically fight for them <laughs> against, the, you know, the umpires of the game. Love Earl Weaver. Definitely happy to have him as the manager of my team here. But let me get into the roster here. 
I'm going to go inside out and I'm going to go from catcher to pitcher here. So catcher, we're going to start with Elrod Hendricks, a lefty. He was hitting 242 home runs. He had 12 with 41 RBIs. You know, he was really sort of a, not a placeholder in the lineup. He was definitely still able to get stuff done. But once you kind of, once you get into these next three guys, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to compare. So at first base, you've got Boog. Boog Powell is definitely I would I would say the favorite player that I found on this team. I love I loved watching Boog play. He was a, just your typical standard big first baseman, and all he did he just he just hit dinghies. He just hit him out of the park every single time. He was hitting 297. He had 35 home runs, 114 RBIs. He was absolutely killing it. And then we have the man of the hour. We have second baseman Davey Johnson later, obviously becoming manager of the New York Mets. He hit 281, had 10 home runs and 53 RBIs. Oh, and also we're in all-star territory here, just so that you know. Boog was an all-star. Johnson was an all-star. And our third baseman was an all-star as well. You had Brooks Robinson, a name I'm going to be bringing up a couple different times during this episode. He had 276, 18 home runs, and 94 RBIs. Then you have shortstop Mark Bellinger uh, hitting 218, only had one home run and 36 RBIs. But then you had left fielder Don Buford. This was your leadoff guy. He was hitting 272, 17 home runs, and 66 RBIs. So pretty solid numbers for being the leadoff guy. And then you have center fielder Paul Blair, 267, 18 home runs, and 65 RBIs. Definitely one of the what one of the interesting stories that I found about this team was Paul Blair is that he was actually this was a, a pivotal year during the course of his career is he was regularly regularly an all-star before 1970 one of the best players in the league potentially however during a game during the season he was beamed in the face with a fastball you know he was oof, a- absolutely oof. just clobbered it was it, it was a rough sight to see and he was able to come back from this you know d- despite the injuries you know but he was never the same I enjoyed watching him play I, I made a note of watching you know some of his highlights from earlier in his career so I had a good grasp of you know what he was truly capable of but yeah definitely a fun a fun guy to watch play but uh, heading back into all-star territory, rounding out the outfield, we have right fielder Frank Robinson hitting 306, 25 home runs, and 78 RBIs. So definitely that, that Robinson duo plus Powell, you know, is definitely, you know, some players that you're going to want to watch out for. But getting into that pitching rotation, I've got three pitchers here for you. All of them all-stars. You have lefty Mike Kuehler. He had just under 300 innings pitched. He went 24-8. and eight. So, you know, he had 32 starts during the course of the season. He had a 348 ERA and 190 strikeouts. Then you have another lefty, Dave McNally. Again, 300 innings pitched. 24 and 9. So you have two 24 win pitchers as your starting three, and you have an ERA of 322, even better, and almost the same exact amount of strikeouts, 185. 
But then it gets better. You have righty Jim Palmer. Definitely one of the all-time greats. 305 innings pitched. He went 20-10. and 10. So you have three pitchers with 20 wins. You know, you have a lot of guys that are pulling some long days out for the Orioles in 1970. He had an ERA of 271 with 200 strikeouts. So you got some guys putting up some good numbers, some very reliable guys that you're going to be able to count on during the course of this series. But that is going to round out my roster for you for the 1970 Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, you got you got two Robinson guys there, man. Not brothers, not related, but you know, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson that that kept other teams on their toes, you know, and then not to mention your pitching staff is pretty much as good as it gets. We've gone through a lot of really, really good pitching staffs, but these guys were freaking studs and got to imagine how frustrating it must have been to to play them in a series. All four of them were just as good. So you're basically getting the same pitcher every game like that must have sucked. Um, but I'm going to go right into my uh, right into my claim to fame number one, which is going to be the amazing Blazing Mets. Amazing Blazing Mets. I like it. You like that? It, it rhymes. It goes together. The Amazing Blazing <laughs> Mets. So this Mets team led the National League in runs scored with 783. Um, they led in hits with 1,462. The next closest there was the San Diego Padres with 1,442. They led in RBIs with 730. And they led in batting average, a team batting average, which was 263. They led in slugging and OPS as well. So this team literally led in every single batting statistical category that you could think of um, other than home runs. Uh, the team, which they scored a lot of runs, but they just didn't they just didn't hit home runs. Um, they just got on the base pads a lot and, and a lot of timely hitting. But obviously, if you still lead in RBIs, you're just putting the bat on the ball, which was good. And they also led the whole league in wins with 108. And actually, they were the only team to reach 100. And uh, another thing too, another stat, longest winning streak on the year was um, 11 wins in a row. So uh, that's obviously winning five in a row in the MLB is tough. Winning, you know, eight in a row is tough and winning 11 is even harder, but actually the Orioles did the same thing. So just another stat that these two teams share. And then we'll go into a little bit more of individual numbers here. You got right fielder Daryl Strawberry and uh, catcher Gary Carter combined for 51 homers this year and 198 RBIs. So Gary had 105 RBIs. That was good for third in the MLB. And then Strawberry had 93 RBIs, good for seventh. And now we are going on to uh, second baseman Wally Backman and first baseman first baseman Keith Hernandez. Um, we'll talk about them as well as our center fielder Lenny Dykstra. They were all top 10 in batting average. So you had Wally Backman led the team with a 320. Keith Hernandez, uh, you know, the all-around, I think, uh, best player, especially best offensive player, with a 310 average, and then uh, Lenny Dykstra almost at 300 there with 295. So you've got three guys right there that can really put the bat on the ball. And then another stat here, you've got Hernandez and Dykstra were actually second and ninth in on-base percentage as well. And Hernandez, definitely not um, 
you know, not a stranger to the limelight, not a stranger to having great seasons. In 1979, Keith Hernandez was actually the MVP. So as a first baseman, getting a gold glove and an MVP, and I'll say it again, he basically was the glue to this team. In his career, he was a five-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger. He won the batting title in 79. Batting titles given to the person with the highest average which he batted 344, which is, that's just sick. I mentioned one of his gold gloves. He had 11 total in his career and a two-time World Series champion. And uh, the scary stat of the day, the New York Mets, this team right here actually was first in the NL with runners left on base with 1,192. <laughs> so can you imagine how many more runs and, and how much more their stats would have been padded if they didn't leave so many runners on base? I had to put it in there put it in there because it just goes to show you just how much the Mets got on base and how much they were ready to score at any given time. Yeah, I definitely think they don't win any awards in efficiency, but uh, they definitely still got the job done. So it's hard to it's hard it's hard to blame them. But um, so, yeah, I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit more about the pitchers that the Orioles are going to be bringing to this game. So I just want to give you some broad strokes as a team, you know, sort of how they ranked. They had 941 strikeouts as a team, which was good for fourth in the American League. 517 runs allowed, which was good for first in the AL. They had a 315 ERA, which was also first in the AL. They had 1,317 hits allowed, which was third in the AL, and they never lost more than two games in a row with those starting three pitchers that I mentioned earlier and that I'm going to talk about now. First up, I'm going to talk about Mike Kuehler. Lefty from Cuba won the AL Cy Young Award in 1969, the year prior, and was also eighth in voting for the AL MVP that year, too. He led the league in 1970 in victories with 24, obviously tying with his teammate. He also led the league in games started with 40 and complete games with 21. This includes four shutouts during the course of the season. He gave up three runs early in game five of the World Series. However, he would go on to pitch a shutout and and a complete game after the third inning. So, you know... Always a guy that, you know, they talked about it, you know, the announcers talked about during the course of the game that he was a guy that definitely got off to slow starts. He was known for that, but he always made up for it. He was, I mean, he honestly should have been a closer based on everything I know about him today, but still, you know, an an incredible player, an incredible starter. And then we have Dave McNally. He was second in Cy Young voting in 1970. He got seventh in strikeouts with 185. He hit. He also hit a grand slam in the playoffs in Game Three of the World Series. The only pitcher to have ever hit a grand slam in the World Series. So he could step up on both sides of the plate. He is second in many Orioles franchise records. He has 33 career shutouts and 181 wins. And a fun fact about McNally for you. In 1999, he was named Montana's Athlete of the Century by Sports Illustrated. So according to Sports Illustrated, the greatest athlete to ever come out of the state of Montana. Not necessarily a state known for great athletes, but yet we have the best of the best. And whenever that crops up, (laughs) I can't help but bring it up on the Ultimate Sports Mashup. 
Then you have Jim Palmer. Inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1990, he played his entire 19-year career with the Baltimore Orioles. His career win-loss is 268 to 152 with a 286 ERA, which is good for third lowest all time with 2,212 strikeouts. So, you know, not necessarily one of the all-time great pitchers that you might think about, you know, maybe not in everybody's top 10, but still one of the best ERAs that we've ever seen. He is a three-time Cy Young winner. He pitched a no-hitter in 1969, the year before we are talking about him now. In his entire career, he never allowed a single grand slam to be hit against him. I'm sure, you know, at different points, you know, that there were three men on base standing behind him, but he is able to get himself out of tough situations. And speaking of which, he never allowed back-to-back home runs. And wow. he's the that's, only. That's pretty impressive. That's a cool stat. Yeah, you know, so I, just to be able to do that for your entire career, not once allowing that to happen, is pretty incredible. And he's the only pitcher to ever win a World Series game in three different decades not win a world series but to win a single world series game you know so that again speaks to this guy's longevity i mean playing 19 years as a pitcher playing as many games as he did it's pretty incredible but in six alcs and six world series he went eight and three with 90 strikeouts two shutouts and an era of 261 so overall his postseason records and postseason ability is absolutely immaculate now in 1970 the year that we're talking about he was second in the al era he was fourth in allowed hits first in shutouts first in innings pitched and third in complete games but to tie everything together they had the first second and third best winning percentages these three pitchers in the al They were 2nd, 13th, and 18th in ERA rankings, and they were 4th, 6th, and 7th in strikeout rankings. So these guys, really impressive crew, you know, what they were able to do as as a team. Yeah, man, in that that pitching rotation, you have three guys with 20 wins plus. So, you know, that's hard to beat. Um, I'll leave it to to the listeners here what they would rather have. So you've got three guys with 20 wins, and then your fourth pitcher... Uh, with 10 wins so for me I'm going to go into my claim to fame number two which I labeled it lights out pitching Um, and I will tell you why it's because four of the five starters collected at least 15 wins so you've got four starters with at least 15 wins and the fifth one Rick Aguilera he actually had 10 wins so five starters in double digit wins would you rather have that or three starters with 20 wins, one with 10, and then all the rest kind of a crapshoot. So, um, you know, you tell me, but like Jay said, you don't even really need the fifth pitcher when uh, your first guy can go on the fifth day because he's rested and the other three guys are killing it. So it's, again, it's super, super even, but um, I'm going to go into um, why I think this Mets pitching was just a little bit better than the Orioles pitching. And I'm going to start with the team's de facto number one, hard-throwing right-hander, Dwight Gooden. Gooden was an um, all-star this season and an all-star and rookie of the year in 84. 
He was the 1985 Cy Young Award winner, and he actually became the youngest pitcher ever to do so at 20 years old. So, year before Rookie of the Year, next year in 85 gets the Cy Young, and then next year in 86 wins a World Series. So, this guy was flying high, probably too high, and that is definitely a play on words. Um, Dwight Gooden is one of the guys on this Mets team that was definitely a cocaine user, um, an alcohol abuser, and uh, you know, but most people just looked at, looked away because of how dominant he was. In the regular season, um, he threw 250 innings. He had a 17 and six record, a 2.84 ERA. And he had 12 complete games, which was definitely solid. Um, And that ERA was good for fifth in the National League. He was fourth in strikeouts with 200. So he matched um, some of your big guys there, especially Palmer, I think, led the group there with 200. And then, so he's definitely keeping up there. But it's kind of scary that that was fourth in strikeouts. Definitely because you had Roger Clemens and Nolan Ryan in this era as well. And then not just the regular season, but Gooden continued in the playoffs in the 86 NLCS. He pitched uh, two games. He had 17 innings total, a 1.06 ERA, and nine strikeouts. So one game, he went 10 innings. He actually went into extra innings. And then the other game, he pitched seven innings. So those numbers definitely show you why. Now I'll go into uh, the team's number two, Ron Darling, another right-hander. Uh, Darling was an all-star in 85, so the year before, and in this season here that we're talking about, uh, 1986, he threw uh, in 237 innings, he had a 15-6 record, 2.81 ERA, he actually had two shutouts, so complete game shutouts, he went the distance, and then he was the savior in the World Series as far as the pitching rotation, 17.2 innings pitched in three games, he had a 1-1 record, so one of those games was a no decision, and then a 1.53 ERA with 12 strikeouts. So he did that in the World Series, which is, um, you know, obviously a feat in itself, not to get caught up in the limelight, in the crowd, into the media, everything else like that. And then I think this Bobby Ojeda really was the savior, even more than Ron Darling was in the whole postseason. I'll get into that here. Regular season, uh, Ojeda, 18 and 5 record. The 18 wins was third in wins in the NL and most on the team. Regular season, 217 innings pitched, 2.57 ERA, which was good for third in the MLB. So he had a lower ERA than Darling and Gooden as well. And then seven complete games. So again, this guy can go the distance. He was fourth in Cy Young award voting. I'm not sure why Bobby Ojeda didn't. He wasn't an all-star. It doesn't make sense to me. He was fourth in the Cy Young voting. Um, And then in the 86 NLCS, 14 innings pitched. He had a 1-0 record, 2.57 ERA, six strikeouts. He actually did have a complete game. You know, that's that's impressive. Anytime you can go the distance is good, especially in the playoffs because you're playing better teams. I mean, it, it just makes sense. That was against the Astros. And then in the World Series against the Red Sox, 13 innings pitch total, 1-0 record, 2.08 ERA. He only gave up three hits in those two starts and nine strikeouts. So to me, you know, I I already told you Wooden is the number one guy. Darling is a change of pace. Well, Ojeda had better stats than all of them, arguably throughout the year and in the playoffs. So to me, Ojeda is the big guy. He's the lefty. 
Um, and then we'll go on to another lefty, uh, Sid Fernandez. So another all-star here, all-star in 86 and 87. This year he threw 204 innings, 3.52 ERA, uh, 200 strikeouts, gave up 161 hits. So this guy again up there in strikeouts, just like a couple of Jays guys and just like um, Wooden. And then, uh, I'm sorry, Gooden. <laughs> I knew I was going to say that. Uh, just like Gooden. And um, yeah, man, he was just a stud. He That's all I can say about it. I guess I will go into, he was seventh in the Cy Young voting for this year. Um, and then in the World Series for him, 6.2 innings pitched, under a two ERA, only gave up five hits, and then 10 strikeouts. So he kind of, you know, rounds out your your starting pitching there. Um, obviously, none of those guys with 24, 20 wins, but all of them double-digit wins at least, and all great ERAs. Um, I'm sure playing defense for them must have been a lot of fun because you didn't really have to do much. And then I'll go through these two guys pretty quick. My relievers and closer. The reliever, the closer for this team is Jesse Orozco. He was a lefty, um, all-star in 83 and 84. And, you know, I, I call him the team's not-so-secret weapon late in games. Um, he threw for 81 innings pitched, 2.3 ERA, and he had 21 saves. In the NLCS, 8 innings pitched, 3.38 ERA. He was actually 3-0 and as a reliever slash closer, uh, and he had 10 strikeouts. So that doesn't happen often um, when your reliever closer is getting wins. But that's just how much they really trusted this guy late in games. Let's go to Jesse. He's the lefty out of the bullpen. And, uh, you know, we trust him. He'll make things work. And then um, that was in the NLCS in the World Series. He only was needed in 5.2 innings, but he had a 0.0 ERA. No one scored. Uh, That also means that no one even got into scoring position. Uh, Gave up two hits, six strikeouts, and two saves. So he's actually 3-0 in the NLCS. And then he gets two saves in the World Series. So again, wow. the the World Series MVP could have gone to three or four different players, really. Just how good they all played. And then the last stat I'll leave you for, for Jesse there, he is number one all-time in games played by a pitcher. He appeared in 1,252 games. Crazy. That's more than Mariano Rivera. Uh, that's more than Jonathan Papelbon. That's more than some of the best relievers and closers of all time so that's either that's a showing that he is used a lot in games b he stays healthy and c obviously trustworthy he had a great career and then we've got our closer roger mcdowell he was a right-hander so you've got jesse the lefty roger um the righty he appeared in 75 games 128 innings pitched 3.02 era and he was actually sixth in Rookie of the Year voting in uh, 1985, the year before, and then seventh in MVP voting this season. So anytime you're seventh in MVP voting is crazy. And then, you know, here are the numbers why I really think my staff is just literally a hair, a hair, the smallest, thinnest hair you can find on my little goatee here, and that is how much better (laughs) the Mets are than the Orioles. So best team ERA in MLB this year with a 3.11. That's just under the Orioles. I believe they're at a 3.15. 27 total complete games, which was second in the NL. 11 total shutouts as a team, third in the National League. 
46 saves thanks to Orozco and McDowell. That was third in the NL, fourth in the whole league. 513 runs, good for second in MLB. And um, second as well in strikeouts with 1,083. And then last but not least, you know, I always like to go into the ages of our rosters when we go back in time like this. The average age of the pitchers for my roster here, 25 and a half years old, which made them the youngest in the MLB. So that is just unreal. Uh, Like I said, I don't have much to talk bad about Jay's team because they are just that good. But I just wanted to highlight the few stats that we can really compare against each other and just show, um, you know, the Mets were in a league of their own, basically. So, um, yeah, that is it for my claim to fame here. And we will leave it for Jay. Yeah, there's no doubt the Mets pitching was absolutely spectacular. But I think I've got a couple of guys that are going to have something to say about that. So my trio of big hitters, I'm going to start off with Brooks Robinson, the third baseman, 16-time Gold Glove Award winner every year from 1950 to 1975. He's an 18-time All-Star. He was the American League MVP back in 1964. But in this year, in 1970, he was the World Series MVP. He played his entire 23-year career with the Baltimore Orioles and was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 19. 83, one of the all-time greats, one of the, if not the best third baseman to ever play the game, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about his defense once we get into our X-Factors. Now on to the other Robinson, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame the year before, 1982, the only player to ever win the AL and National League MVPs. He had won the NL MVP with the Reds back in 61 and the Orioles in 65. In 1970, he hit back-to-back grand slams in a game in July against the Senators. An absolutely incredible feat all on its own. He was 14th in Major League Baseball in on-base percentage at 398 and 16th in the Major Leagues with a batting average of 306. Now on to the big hitter. We have Boog, 11th in the MLB in home runs with 35, which was also good for 5th in the AL. He was 9th in the Major Leagues in RBIs with 114, which was good for 3rd in the AL. And, perhaps most importantly, he was the American League Most Valuable Player of 1970. So, you have the best player in the American League in Boog in 1970, but you also have three, no, four MVPs total between these three players that I just named for you, and at least 30 All-Star games, probably, I'm guessing, I'm I'm, going to put that number around 40. All of this was made possible by their leadoff man, Don Buford, who was 10th in Major League Baseball in on-base percentage with a 4.06 rating. So really, the, these these three, but with Buford, really made this hitting lineup click. And I don't have much else to say other than that these guys, they hit balls. They won games. It, and so that is going to sum up my final claim to fame. Gosh, man, you, you really do have, you know, I want to say that I have the edge with my pitching rotation just a little bit, if I may. And those three hitters 
I think are better than any three hitters I have on my team. So I will go out and say that on the record. So there you go, Jay. That's kind of a a little um, throwing you a bone there. But, you know, I have confidence just like my X factor here. So my X factor, a little bit different than what we normally go for. But, um, you know, my X factor is going to be the confidence, the toughness, and, you know, maybe a little bit of the drug use that went on with this New York Mets team. And by a little bit of drug use, I mean a shit ton of drug use. Um, <laughs> you know, these guys, I, I have a, a couple articles here on our on our outline here so Jay can see it. You know, multiple articles written about these guys and how they partied hard. So this team was often referred to as the wildest team in, in MLB history. They, they partied hard no matter the outcome of the game. Um, one of the articles that I read was, uh, let's see if I can find the title here real quick. Um, yeah, one of the articles that I read was titled the hell raising cocaine snorting 86 Mets craziest team in major league baseball history. (laughs) So uh, unfortunately I mentioned the drug abuse, the alcohol abuse, um, and, and gambling as well. Unfortunately, even domestic abuse in some cases, um, you know, the drugs just got a little bit too crazy for some of these guys, but, uh, Keith Hernandez, you know, I was talking about him in the first baseman, actually was released from the Cardinals in 85, the year before, for his cocaine problem. Um, and then Davey Johnson, uh, you know, true to nature, said, just come on over. We don't care what you do. Just win us some games. And then uh, you actually had four Mets that were arrested for getting into a bar fight during the season. You know, I'm sure they just stayed a little bit too late past bar close and the cocaine probably get got them a little jazzed up too but um another article cool article i read um the best last plane ride ever after winning game seven of the world series the team completely destroyed their plane you know champagne everywhere beer everywhere cake and of course a ton of drugs everywhere um you know i guess once you win the world series you can just do whatever the hell you want but obviously the mlb and some of the teams involved you know, around the league, we're obviously torn on how to feel about this team. Um, You know, half were pissed about the on and off field antics. More of the on field antics were just the cocky attitude in interviews, the swagger on the field. A couple of the guys were wearing nice shiny chains. Um, But, you know, obviously that comes with the territory. So you're winning games, you're you're getting uh, a little showy, on top of that, handful of scrums with other teams throughout the year. I mean, I saw one where Ray Knight didn't even give the guy a chance. One of the uh, one of the base runners slid into third, kind of slid into Ray's feet a little bit. Ray pushed him, guy pushed Ray back, and then he just fucking gave him a right hand from hell, man. It, <laughs> the, the dude didn't even see it coming. So once that happened, all the benches cleared. I saw a couple scrums with Daryl Strawberry, uh, Lenny Dykstra. So these guys didn't put up with shit. But it's because they most likely knew that at the end of the game, they would win it. My X Factor, you know, is a little funny, but it had to be this hell-raising, cocaine-using, alcohol-abusing, blazing Mets team. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you have teams like this. They probably won at least a handful of games just by tilting their opponents, just by setting them off, you know, uh, off off the right course, you know. Because, I mean, if, if a guy, you know, looks you up and down and is flips the bat and strolls around the bases, you know, like he's taking a walk on a beach with his wife, then yeah, you know, <laughs> you're going to get pissed. So I can, I can understand, you know, the, this being a, a, an aspect in this game. 
So my X Factor is uh, perhaps a little tamer, but, you know, it might actually help me on the field, dare I say. Um, I'm going to talk <laughs> about Brooke Robinson again, the third baseman. I want to talk about his defense. He, This was what he was most well-known for, despite being an excellent hitter. Like I said before, 16-time Golden Glove winner, but he holds several records for third baseman. He has the most games ever played at the position, and obviously part of that is luck, you know, not being injured a lot during the course of his career, but he was consistent. He has the most assists of any third baseman with 6,205 and the most double plays with 618 double plays over the course of his career. He led the AL in fielding percentage in 11 seasons during the course of his career. So he was at the top for a very long time during many years. He led the team to the third least errors in 1970 with 117. Only three off of the first place total, so they were very close to having that first place title. They had the second highest fielding percentage as a team with 981, which was just .001 off of first place in the MLB. They also had the third highest defensive efficiency rating at 723, and that number takes into account the percentage of balls in play that were converted into outs. Brooks Robinson was an all-around player. He did it on both ends. That's why he won an MVP during the course of his career, and I think his defense could possibly be the thing that takes this team to winning, you know, three games to take to winning four games in this series against another World Series champion. We'll see what uh we'll see what the what if sports simulator says here. Let's see if the cocaine <laughs> is enough to put me over the top. We shall find out. So how we decide the winner here on the Ultimate Sports Mashup is thanks to whatifsports.com. We are going to plug in the Mets and the 70 Orioles in a seven-game series against each other to see who is going to come out on top. Now, Cam. We have two teams with the same exact record. How do you want to handle home versus away? You know, I thought about that and I was like, you know what? Maybe we'll do another coin flip, but I didn't want to do that because I lost the last one. So if you're okay <laughs> with it, why don't we give <laughs> why don't we give uh, your 70 Orioles, the older team, why don't we give them home field? All right, we have our simulator set up. We have our starting pitchers. We're going to start with Dwight Gooden for the Mets and Dave McNally for the Orioles. And we have our location set. Let's play our first game. Ooh. And we have the Orioles coming out on top 6-4, to four, winning the game with the Mets, coming away with two errors during the course of the game. Interesting. Damn, that's a close game. Six to four. Shit. Taking a look at the rundown here, we have Boog with two RBIs, but we have my catcher, Ellie Hendricks, with four RBIs. Wow, apparently I did not respect him enough during the course of my research, but he was able to pull in four RBIs for the team. An interesting game, but yeah, the uh, four runs for the Mets coming in the seventh and eighth inning and the Orioles scoring all throughout with three in the third. So that was really the difference maker there. Yeah, so Mets almost came back a little bit, it sounded like, but let's see. Uh, Game two, I'm going with my boy uh, with Darling. So uh, let's see how game two goes. All right, we have Darling in for the Mets. I think I'm going to go with uh, Mike Kuehler here. 
as my second starting, and we're going home once again for the Orioles, and uh, the game after this will swing back to the uh, ballpark of the Mets. Let's see who wins game number two. And the Orioles pull it out again at home field advantage. They win five to one. And this is incredible. The Orioles got nine hits in this game to the New York Mets' ten hits. Hey, Cam, do you remember that uh, scary stat of the day you told me? Damn it. Yes, I do remember the scary stat of the day. <laughs> I think, I think, Shit, I think that might that have work? come into, I think that might have come into factor here. Oh, man. You said five to one, huh? Yeah, Gary Carter had your your lone RBI, and I mean, you have Dykstra, two hits, you have Backman and Strawberry, one, two hits, Carter had three hits, Santana had two hits, but just not able to be able to get them home. I think this is just attesting to the Orioles pitching staff, man. Yeah, Kuehler, eight innings pitched, 10 hits, one run, obviously. So, wow, that is 2-0 for the Orioles. I was not expecting this to start off with. You know, I like, I secretly kind of was because I think baseball even more than you know football and basketball even a little bit like home field really does make a difference Shea Stadium is going to be fucking jam-packed for this game three ultimate sports mashup come on Jay come on Jay I need a win here who is your pitcher I am going with my I'm going with Palmer I'm going with my hall of famer who you got going up against him I think we should do uh Ojeda yep Let's go with Bobby. All right. Game number three. Oh, five to four. The Mets pull out the win. Oh, my gosh. Let's go. Oh, he's coming back, boys. Let's see what happened. You got, yeah, all the Orioles, they had two runs in the ninth inning. It was it, it, it was two to four going into the ninth, and the Orioles tied it up in the ninth, but the Mets with the game winning run in the ninth let's see who was responsible strawberry hits a single to center field hernandez grounds out to third base but carter pounds it through the hole to right field for a single paul blair's throw is off the mark up to the first baseline and strawberry scores no way oh man that is that's dramatic ball hit to the outfield bad relay daryl strawberry uses his speed like i was talking about Boom. Wow, that was the Orioles almost came back. They almost did, but Gary Carter drives in the game-winning run. He's really been I you know, he's he's damn near the MVP if the Mets pull out this the this series. He's uh he's gotten quite a few hits in RBIs. See, but now I don't know what to do for game 4. Do I throw, you know, Fernandez? Do I throw him or do I go back game 1 and, you know, throw throw Gooden? But I, I think I'm going to just let it play its course. I think Davey Johnson would throw Fernandez in game four. Uh, if you're going to go Fernandez, you're going to go your fourth guy. I will go my fourth guy as well, Tom Phoebus. He had a 3.07 ERA. So I have confidence. He wasn't one of the guys that I mentioned. No, not necessarily an all-star, but definitely still a solid pitcher. And we are sticking with our home team here. We have the Mets in game four. Can they tie it up? And they do. 3-2, to two, another close game. Another run in the ninth inning. What is happening? 3-2 no. for the New York Mets. Backman hits a ground ball single to center field, and Knight scores for the game-winning run in the ninth inning. 
And I guess since I went game one was was good in I, I think I gotta go game five good in again. I think I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm going McNally, my number one guy as uh, as my next pitcher. Um, one more one more home game for the Mets. Am I right? Yep, one more and, and this is the one they they need this bad. Oh two oh two to two. Let's see who comes out with the tiebreaker. Oh, the Orioles kill him. Nine to one. Oh, oh boy. Absolute domination with five runs in the eighth inning. Absolutely incredible. Dave McNally, seven innings pitched, six hits allowed, one run allowed, four strikeouts. Wow. What an incredible showing by McNally. Yep. They have they have Gooden's number, man. Beat him game one, six to four, game five, nine to one. All right. And the Orioles have the lead three to two, and they're taking it back home. Let's go, boys. Let's go. This is big. This is big. Jay's got his number two against my number two. Oh man, game six. Darling versus Kuehler. Four to three for the Mets. Oh, we're going to game seven. Oh, I told no. you. Man, the Orioles 1-0 up until the fifth inning where they, the Mets tied it 1-1. to And then in the eighth inning, Orioles score two, Mets score one. And then the Mets once again in the ninth inning scoring two runs. And the Orioles were unable to answer. Let's take a closer look here at that ninth inning. First batter, Carter grounds out to second base. Wilson grounds out to second base. You're working with two outs here, buddy. Then Knight hits a single to right center field. Santana then draws the walk. You got two and you got two on base, and then you have Heap gets a walk as well. You got three on base, and then Dykstra comes in and smokes a line drive single to left field, allowing Knight to score. Leonard lets one get away, and all runners advance on the wild pitch. And then Santana scores. Hate to see it on a wild pitch, but those are, you know, you mentioned uh, Dykstra, you mentioned Ray Knight. So those are those are the guys that we need on base. So that's good. They're getting on base, but, you know, you hate to see him win it on a wild pitch. That kind of sucks. Uh, that's, that's, that's what happens. But yeah, Dykstra, Dykstra, two RBIs. Yeah, okay. Let's, uh, let's do it. All right. We're back at Palmer, my Hall of Famer. He's got this. He's going to close it out in Game 7. And who's he going to go up against, Cam? Are you going with Sid here? You know, I want to go with Sid. He had a great outing. Um, You know, got me a win. But I'm going to go with Bobby Ojeda. He's the guy that I said should have been an all-star. Um, You know, should have been more regarded as a Cy Young, you know, finalist. So I'm going with Bobby here Game 7. Oh, man. This is game seven, buddy. Let's go. Nine to no. Nine to two. They're the Mets. The Mets won nine to two. Are you kidding me? They killed it. 18 hits. What is happening? 18 hits. The amazing blazing Mets. Oh, and it oh, it was Bob Ojeda. Nine innings pitched, a complete game, three strikeouts. 
two earned runs against him and just my guys couldn't hit him bob ojeda man what did i say that guy what he had two wins right i threw him in game three and in game seven so this guy did what he was supposed to do nasty lefty brought the heat man and that is it that is oh cam cam walking away with the win once again i think we're getting pretty close to even you pulling out these wins on me here I finally, I got a couple in a row. I think if we're not even, you're still up one. So this is good. I needed this one. And it went all the way to game seven in true uh, Mets fashion. You know, you mentioned that before. But uh, whew, they got it done, man. That was awesome. What a series. That's one that I would have loved to watch. And with how pumped up the Mets get and how pumped up the Orioles, both, you know, both teams get during games like that. Oh, man, that would have been an awesome series to watch. That was a really good matchup. I'm glad, you know, not... When I when I think about, you know, greatest baseball teams of all time, you know, the Orioles and the Mets, you know, aren't, you know, historic dynasties, but yet they still had two of the best teams the league has ever seen, you know, in their given years. And so this was really a really a great matchup that is going to sum up everything we have for you today on the ultimate sports mashup i think next week we are leaning towards doing an nba matchup we are approaching the nba playoffs as we speak right now so that'll definitely be something to look forward to but that's all we have for you on episode 11 of the ultimate sports mashup as always two historic teams came into battle but only one left is the ultimate champion if you want to continue to travel back through the sports time continuum to help us create some of the best what if sports mashups of all time follow us on facebook and instagram at ultimate sports mashup but i also want to give a quick shout out if you want, if you are listening to this on an Apple device, make sure to leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what we can improve, what we can do better, or even better, if you want to leave us a five-star review and tell us the matchup that you want to hear. That is by far the best way to get us to do the matchup of your choice. But until the next sport in the next decade, I've been Jay. And I'm Cam. And we'll see you next time, folks. 